One sense, uh, there's no bigger question than the one that the book of Galatians is attempting to answer for us. The question that this book is dealing with overall is how do I relate to God? How do I experience God? How do I engage with God? How do I enjoy God? Do we gain a fuller and more complete revelation of God by keeping more of his law, by being more moral than we were before? Uh, When conscience or nature or scripture reveals some of God's will and we keep it, is that our way of getting to know God and experiencing God? Or do we encounter God by his grace? Do we enjoy God by walking with him, by faith, believing the promises that he's made and given to us? How do we relate to God? Now, if you've been following along in this study of the book of Galatians up to this point, you probably suspect that you know the answer uh, to that question. Uh, But this question is an impactful question. It's a question, by the way, I believe, impacts your eternal life, but I believe that it also impacts your life today. It impacts your tomorrow destiny, but it definitely impacts your psyche, your emotional state, your well-being, your health right here and now. Much of our current either joy or despair, uh, contentment or strife, peace or unease, It stems from our answer to these questions. If we can answer these questions the way that Paul does in Galatians, then we have great odds of enjoying God. And enjoying God will shake itself out into thousands of ways in your life. So if you've been here, you probably think, well, I think that we approach God not by our works, but by grace, by his promise and our faith in that promise. And that is right. That's the case that Paul has been building throughout the book of Galatians. Of the people that he wrote to, the Galatians, which lived in a region called Galatia, these new Christians were being bombarded with false teachers who were telling them, Jesus is great, the cross is great, the gospel is good, but now that you believe it, you must add to it the works of the law. If you really want to experience God, if you really want to be approved by God, if you really want to be a true and real Christian, these are the things you need to add to your belief in the cross of Christ. And Paul comes along and he says, no, we relate to God in the same way that Abraham did so many years ago. He saw, heard, believed the promise of God, and God accounted that faith to him as righteousness. And he quoted from Habakkuk chapter 2 in a previous section to say, and the righteous or the just shall live by their faith. So we're to walk by faith today. But this brings up a problem. If you were one of the false teachers that had gone to Galatia, or you were one of the Galatians who had begun to practice some of the Jewish customs and laws from the Old Testament, thinking that that's what you now needed to do as a new Christian. Or if you're here today, you might be asking the question, well, what about the law? Why did God give it then? If we're justified by faith and the promise of God, 
Why did God give to Moses the Ten Commandments? Why did he give to Moses the ceremonial law and the tabernacle system? Why did he give to Moses the moral law for the people of Israel, telling them how to conduct their everyday lives and affairs? Why did God give the law? And for that, Paul is going to give to us the passage that we're going to read this morning. And what Paul is going to do is he's going to explain to us how he thinks the law complements, doesn't compete with, but complements the gospel. And I'm going to try to show it to you in three ways today, starting with this first one, number one. The, the law complements the gospel because the law arrived after Christ was promised. Number one, it arrived after Christ was promised. Let's read verse 15 to 18 together. He said, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean, verse 17. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Uh, you're gonna start to notice here two key words for the passage that we're looking at today. One is the word promise, the other is the word law or works. And that's the idea of this passage. How do we relate to God according to promise or according to our works, according to grace or according to the law? And what I'm trying to illustrate here through this passage is that the law complements the gospel because it arrived after Christ was promised. Here what Paul says is that the law, it came over four centuries after Abraham had received uh, his promise that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He received that promise, he heard that promise, and it took, Paul says, 430 years for Israel to develop from Abraham's family tree into a people that were delivered from their slavery in Egypt, brought out into the wilderness, and then received the law of God. And so Paul is saying that the law complements the gospel uh, of grace or of promise because it originated so long after the promise began. Uh, to illustrate this, Paul gives, he says, a human example. He points out the way a human contract or a man-made covenant, to use his words, uh, works. He says that when someone makes a contract, once it's been ratified, agreed upon, signed, uh, you don't go about just changing that contract uh, at will. It takes both parties to change the agreement. If, if you, for instance, are sitting down and you're working on your budget, and you start looking at all the different lines in your budget, and you become a little depressed with how big your rent payment is or your mortgage payment is for that month, uh, you can't just sit there and say, you know, I just feel like it's not fair and it's too much. So, you know, I'm going to slash it in half and I'm just going to pay half of what I agreed to pay. It might work if you're living in your mom's basement or something like that, but 
for the rest of us, it's not going to work. You've signed the contract. It's been agreed upon. We understand this. We enter into agreements with cell phone companies. You sign documents before you take a class. There's all kinds of things we do. And once the agreement is ratified, you can't just go and change it however you would like to change it. So what Paul is saying here is that when the law of Moses arrived, 430 years after the promises God made to Abraham occurred, the law did not negate or cancel or change that God was dealing with his people based on promise rather than on works. And of course, this is what Paul had been saying up to this point of the letter. How was Abraham accepted by God? Not by his works, but by his faith in that amazing promise that God had made to him. Uh, maybe a way to illustrate this is to imagine what it would be, what it would have been like if Abraham had lived a supernaturally long life. Uh, let's imagine that Abraham received the promise there in Genesis 12, and then in Genesis 15, and then in Genesis 17. Let's imagine Abraham received the promise, he believed it, and God accounted it to him for righteousness. But then let's imagine that he did not die when the Bible says that he died. Let's imagine that he had Isaac and then Isaac had Jacob and then Jacob had his 12 sons and they developed into a nation. But let's imagine Abraham is alive for that whole experience. He stays alive as they move to Egypt. He stays alive during the four centuries as we're imagining this. He stays alive during the four centuries that they're in Egypt until eventually they find themselves enslaved. He joins the people of Israel in crying out to God for a deliverer, and God raises up Moses. Moses comes in with a staff in his hand, and Abraham's privy to the miracles and the disasters and the, the deliverance that God wins for the people of Israel. And Moses then, in this story we're inventing right now, this is not what happened in the Bible, by the way. Moses, he then goes out with the people of Israel. He passes through the Red Sea. And he's there at the base of the mountain when Moses goes up to the top of Mount Sinai and receives the Ten Commandments, the ceremonial law of God, and the moral law of God for the people of Israel. When Abraham heard it, when Abraham saw it, when Abraham read it, he would say, that is beautiful. I know I'm not accepted because of it. I'm no, I know I'm not justified by keeping it. I know that I'm not approved by God because I do it. That's already been settled. Over 430 years ago, God made me his promise. I believed in it, and he brought me into a covenant relationship with himself. But that law that I just heard that is the way to live. And I want to be obedient to that law as God revealed. But Abraham would never have thought in a million years that he was going to become righteous or accepted by God based on those works. This is good for us to recognize that the law arrived many years after the coming Christ was promised to Abraham. Because that promise was the seedbed of the gospel. So in a sense, you could say that the gospel predates the law by many centuries. And since God began by relating to Abraham through promise and faith, what this text is showing us is that God continues to relate to his people through promise and faith, not 
by works of the law. And this is abundantly good news because it shows us that the gospel of grace, the gospel of Christ, it's, they both still stand. You know, the Galatians, like I said, they wondered if after they believed in Jesus, they needed to add all of these things onto their belief in Christ. But since God's promise and Abraham's faith are much more ancient than God's law, we can know that God still relates to us by promise and faith. I, I've been told that in an improv comedy class, you know, where amateur comedians are trying to learn how to do improv and they're kind of playing out various scenes. I've been told that sometimes it can get a little bit out of hand and so the instructor will have to kind of jump in and get the story back on track. And uh, when they do, it's apparently called recovering the plot. Like we just lost our minds here, the story is going crazy, I need to jump in, all right, stop everybody, this is where we're gonna go and they recover the plot. And I think that our hearts are sometimes like that group of amateur comedians. We, we get off track. We begin thinking as Christians that our gospel days are a distant memory and now we relate to God according to our works. And that is either going to inflate you or deflate you depending on how you're doing at any given moment. It's either gonna fill you with despair because you're seeing your imperfections and uh, you're seeing your sin and your shortcomings, or it's going to fill you with pride because you're blinded to them and you have a small view of God's holiness. You're either going to think that you're doing terribly or you're gonna think that you're the next great saint to walk God's green earth. You're either gonna become like Zacchaeus who felt he didn't even deserve to eat a meal with Jesus or you're gonna feel like the Pharisees who looked down on Jesus and thought they had no need for him or his message. Because of this tendency, the plot must be recovered at times. We do not relate to God based on our goodness. No one ever has. We relate to God by responding to his promises by faith. And this should be something that causes us to rejoice. To rejoice at having begun with the Spirit, having begun by the gift of grace and faith. We are not perfected by effort or performance. If we were, God's grace would be canceled out. His promise to Abraham would be void. But God's promises, according to Paul, cannot be altered. God still relates to us by grace and gift and faith. Uh, we're firmly, brothers and sisters, in a gift-promise relationship with God, not a law-wage one. And that's what this passage reminds us of. And that's an important thing for us to be reminded of because everything else around us, we're, we're swimming in a law-wage world. You work really hard in school, you're going to get good grades. Uh, you obey the laws of the land and hopefully people will leave you alone. You work for a specific amount of time and you receive an agreed upon salary or wage. Uh, you're nice to your spouse if you're married and you're kind of hoping that they're gonna return the favor. And for those of you that are married, you know what it's like when you're like, I thought I was being nice and you're not being nice in response and so now I'm gonna be mean. We, we deal with the law-wage mentality constantly. It colors everything around us, so it feels foreign when God invites us into this grace, gift, promise, faith way of relating to him. 
What Paul is trying to help us conclude as a people that Christianity is the religion of Abraham, not the religion of Moses. And since God dealt with Abraham in that promise, grace, faith category, he wants us to continue in that same way. All right, let's move on to the second thing, though, that the passage tells us. Number two, the law complements the gospel because it combated sin until Christ arrived. Look at what it says in verse 19 and 20. He says, why then the law? And you can imagine his readers and listeners asking that question. You know, why, why then was the law even there? Why did it come? He says, well, it was added because of transgressions until, so it had an expiration date, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies, he says in verse 20, more than one, but God is one. All right, from this, like I said, the second way the law complements the gospel is that it combated sin until Christ arrived. You know, these Galatians and probably the false teachers were asking that question there in verse 19, why then the law? If it's all about believing in the same promises that God made to Abraham, but just in our era in a more fully developed way, uh, if he was justified by looking forward to Jesus and we're justified by looking back to the cross of Jesus, why then did God give Israel the law? Why did it come there on Mount Sinai? Uh, well, Paul's answer is very simple in verse 19. He says, because of transgressions. Now we're gonna see in the coming verses and even next week that there's a fuller part of this answer, but this is the first part of the answer. Because of transgressions, because of the presence of sin, uh, the law came. Uh, let me try to illustrate this with something that I'm sure a lot of you guys remember from when you were kids. How many of you guys, when you were children, you played the floor is hot lava game? You guys ever play that game? If you didn't play it as a kid, I'd encourage you today when you go home <laughs> to try this game for the rest of the day. It was a lot of fun. It's basically just a game. Sometimes you play it on a rainy day or something like that where you couldn't go outside, where you just imagine that the floor was burning hot hot lava that was, would kill you if, you if you touched it at all. So you had to figure out ways to kind of navigate around the house, you know. My, my signature move, and I'm sure many people did this, was to get a couple of like throw pillows, and that would just be like my way of getting around. Like throw a pillow, go ahead, grab the pillow behind me, throw the next pillow, and I'd kind of, you know, make little lily pads for myself all throughout the house. But you climb on the furniture, all of that, because, uh, you know, the floor in the game is deadly. Well, I think in a sense, the law became like that for the people of Israel. You see, they were like this emerging nation when they came out of Egypt. In fact, they were very confused. They would have been very confused morally when they came out of Egypt because Egypt was very upside down when it came to a perspective on what is right and what is wrong. So they needed a new standard. They needed to figure out how do we live as a society? We've never had to do this for ourselves. And the law that God gave to Moses to give to them helped them discover it. And so they could ask questions. They could say things like, what, what will happen in our new nation, our new Israelite society? What will happen if adultery is rampant among us? What, what will happen if that's just a real common occurrence? And they look in the law and they discover it'll kill us. So we need to avoid that. 
uh, they could look into the law and they could ask the question, what will happen if children don't respect and obey their parents in a widespread way in our society and culture? And they could have looked in the law and seen, it, it will kill us. We need to avoid that. Uh, they could look into the law and ask the question, what, what will happen if we worship the gods of the nations around us? Again, it will kill us, so we will avoid it. What will happen, they could ask, if, if we give in to our greedy impulses? You know, if we can never have enough and we're not generous, they could look into the law and realize if we cave to that, it will kill us, so we'll avoid it. What happens if we give in to any sexual impulse that comes into our minds? Well, it'll kill us. We must avoid it. What will happen if we abuse the poor or we neglect the foreigner? It will kill us. We must avoid it. They could go to the word to see what I'm saying was the hot lava that they should not touch that would harm them. The law helped them see what was good for them. The law helped them see what was bad for them. The law served to, for them or to them like the nutrition facts on the side of food packaging. You know, the law showed them what a healthy life looked like and what a not so healthy form of life looked like. And you see this when you read the Old Testament. All through the first third of the Old Testament, which is mainly comprised of the historical books of the Old Testament, so their story, uh, you see this over and over again. Whenever they were allegiant to the law, whenever they obeyed the law generally, they did well as a people. And when they neglected it generally, they did poorly as a people. When they disobeyed, it hurt them. When they obeyed, it helped them. Uh, you see examples of this all throughout the historical books. Take Samson as an individual, for instance. When Samson worshiped God, when Samson refrained from uncleanness, when Samson kept himself from sexual experiences with foreign women, he was strong and he was mighty and God used his life. But as he more and more succumbed to temptation, as he increasingly walked away from a law-guided life, Samson eventually lost his strength. He's a great example of what happened nationally over and over again. David is another example of this. When David walked with God, when David was writing worship songs to God, when David was walking by faith, he excelled. But when David gave in to his baser impulses and desires, he lost his strength. And this is what happened over and over again to the whole nation. When they trusted God, he expanded their borders and gave them peace. But when they rejected God's ways and adopted the ways of the nations around them, they suffered. Paul's point is that the law did not negate the promise. And we already saw that in verse 18. If inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. And that's true. When uh, Abraham got what he got, it did come as a one-way promise from God to Abraham. In fact, in Genesis chapter 15, when God said to Abraham for a second time, gave him the promises again, and it says that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. The rest of the chapter then details a covenant that God and Abraham made together. In those days, you would make a covenant quite often by taking an animal or animal sacrifices and cutting them in two, and the people making the covenant would stand in the midst 
of that slaughtered animal. It was a way of saying, if I break my contract, my covenant, uh, may it be to me as this happened to these animals. Let me be torn in part. I'm, I'm going to keep my covenant. So God told Abraham to bring some animals and they were divided and all of that. And then here's the kicker. God made Abraham fall asleep. And God was the only one to walk through the animals. God was the only one to pass through. It was a one-way promise. Abraham was a pure recipient. He believed, and so God accounted it to him for righteousness. But when the law came, what Paul says is that it was different. There were intermediaries, he says. Uh, And that's true. When you read the Old Testament, there were angels who delivered the law to Moses, and Moses then delivered the law to the people of Israel. It was a little bit more of a contract kind of situation. Do this and live. Don't do this, and you will suffer. You will die. You'll face the consequences. And so the law, as Paul said, came because of transgressions. If the Israelites were left to their own devices just like us, they would have devolved and assimilated into the nations around them. They would have lost their distinction, and they needed to keep their distinction because they were to be the nation that gave birth to the Christ, the Messiah, who would fulfill the promise to Abraham and be the Savior of the world. But the law, it was there combating sin in Israel all through those centuries, urging the people until Jesus came, until the promised offspring arrived. I was recently down in uh, Southern California uh, because my oldest daughter is there in college. And I was driving through just a a neighborhood one day and I drove by one of their uh, beautiful strip malls that they have all over the place. And I looked over and I saw a store. I'd never, I've never seen one of these before. It was a candy for less store. I don't know if it's a chain or anything like that, but I have a terrible sweet tooth. I love candy so much. And so when I saw that store, my mind just began racing, you know, because I've really noticed like the price of candy has gone up quite a bit. (laughs) And so I thought, candy for less? It's like a match made in heaven. And as I was thinking, I mean, I swear to you, I think my teeth even started hurting as I was thinking about what it would be like if I went into that store. And then As I looked again at the store, I noticed that their immediate neighbor literally shared a wall just to the left of them uh, was another business, and it just said, dentist. That was it, (laughs) dentist. (laughs) I thought, that's great. That's a good illustration of, I think, what the law was like for the people of Israel. The presence of that dentist right next to a candy for less. There you are, like walking into the door, a candy for less, and you look over, and there's a dentist over there. It's probably gonna be bad for me if I go in here. The law was like that for the people of Israel. It would preach to them, remind them, you go through these doors, there's gonna be some negative consequences that you experience. And before we trust Christ, that's what we needed the law for, to restrain us from evil. We needed it to say, if you go there, you will pay the price. Okay, but the third and final reason for today that I wanted you to see that the law complements the gospel is because it reveals our need for Christ. Paul's gonna really flesh this out again next week, but let's read verse 21 and 22 together. Paul said, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. 
For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So again, just to remind you, the final way I think that this text shows us the law complements the gospel is it reveals our need for Christ. What Paul says here in verse 21 is that it does not contradict the promises of God because it could never give life or righteousness before God. Remember last week I talked to you about how uh, there were two potential or technically two ways to be accepted by God. You've got either perfect obedience to the law or the gospel, the, the borrowed righteousness, the imputed righteousness of Christ. I use the illustration of two ways up a mountain. You've got the tram or you've got the trail, but we're paralyzed. How can we get up the trail? So we need the tram of the gospel to take us up. But what this passage is telling us is that though the law is a technical way up the mountain, it's actually a non-way. It actually is impossible for anyone to find life in that way. He says in verse 21, it could not give life. But what it did was, he says in verse 22, imprison everything under sin. That's what the law did. It imprisoned everything under sin. In fact, he doesn't even say that the law imprisoned everything under sin, but that scripture imprisoned everything under sin. Now, usually when we, when we read the Bible, when we read scripture, and you are saying to ourselves, you know, I want to read the Bible more, or I'm going to read the Bible this morning, or something like that. We're not thinking to ourselves, you know what I really hope happens is I hope that the scripture just nails me. I hope that it points out just how terrible I am. We usually were thinking, like, I, I, want, I need a word of encouragement. I need some wisdom. I need some guidance. But this is one of the facets of the scripture as revealed in the law of God. The law teaches us, in a sense, how morally helpless we are as people. It is good news in Scripture that cannot be fully appreciated unless we know the bad news. When Paul says that the law imprisons us, he's referring to the power of sin in humanity. He's referring to the power of the law in our lives. The law was given to Moses to show us what sin is and to make us aware of our need for a savior. In other passages of scripture, you even discover that the law doesn't even just hold up a righteous standard that we can't measure up to, thereby helping us understand what sin is in the first place But there are other passages that help us understand that the law actually seems to stir up sinful desires within us. Like a little child who is told by his parents, don't touch that. What happens to that little child? To many little boys, it's, I don't know why, but for some reason now, all I want to do is touch that. That's what the law oftentimes does to us. Oh, this is forbidden. This is sin. I want to, I'm curious. I'm curious. I'd like to experience it. Paul uses powerful imagery to describe what the law does to us. It locks us up. He uses the word prison. It imprisons everything under sin. We're shackled. We're behind bars. We're without freedom. Some people think of freedom as the idea of doing whatever you want, but the law helps us understand, no, you're actually enslaved. 
So the law complements the gospel because it points us to our need for the gospel. It helps us see our brokenness. It helps us see that we've fallen short of the glory of God. Now, I'm not, I'm not a baker or anything, so bear with me for this illustration, but uh, what I'm told is without baking powder, a chocolate chip cookie is gonna fall flat. It's gonna be dense. It's gonna be flat. It won't become light and airy, but will instead be dense. And I think that's a great picture of what the law is. Without the law, without understanding the perfect righteous standard, without seeing God's holiness at least more accurately than you are naturally, without seeing that, uh, the gospel, when you hear it, can be a, a dense, unattractive, unappealing kind of message. But once the law does its work by showing you your limitations and the impossibility of keeping it its entirety, the gracious gift of the gospel, it begins to rise. As Paul said there in verse 22, the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. It's the law that helps us see our sin problem, in other words. It's the law that helps us see our, our need for Jesus. Paul wrote it this way in Romans 7, verse 7, which I'll get into a little bit more next week. He said, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. And to know sin means you're kind of on like step one of coming to Jesus. You're seeing your limitation. You're seeing your weakness. You're seeing a problem within uh, recently, uh, Star Wars had a new uh, installment called Andor. I don't know if you've seen it before. And there might be a little minor spoiler in this illustration that I'm going to give. But if you have not seen it yet, you're not a real Star Wars fan anyways. I mean, come on. <laughs> it's not the full kicker that I'm going to give to you today. But early on in the show, there's a moment where young Cassian Andor, he's wrongly jailed in an imperial prison, and he begins to figure out none of us are gonna get out of here. We're gonna die in this prison. So he decides, I need to try to escape. So he approaches an experienced older inmate who knows the prison inside and out, and together they devise a plan to try to escape. And on the big day, uh, he leads Cassian and hundreds of other inmates to uh, freedom, but when they all finally get to the point where they could be free, uh, what's required is this tall or high jump into a large body of water. And this older inmate, it's at that moment, it's very dramatic, it's at that moment where he confesses and realizes this is our way of escape, and he confesses, I can't swim. I can't swim. He led them to that point but he could not be saved. He could not deliver himself. And so he hesitates, and that's the end of his part of the story. This, to me, is the way of the law. It can point you to freedom, but it's not the way to freedom. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. And you must take the plunge into Christ in order to be saved. To again quote Paul in Romans, he said, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And that knowledge of sin should cause us to turn from the law as a path to being accepted by God, and it should make us turn to Jesus. All right, so we've thought about this passage today. Um, 
We've thought about how the law complements the gospel, but, but how should we, as, as I wrap this up, how, how should we respond to this? Are, are there things that we should do in response to this truth? You, you know, if, if it arrived well after the promise that was given to Abraham, um, what do we do with that information? Uh, if it was useful for the Israelites to help suppress their evil, how does that impact us today? If it reveals our deep need for Jesus and his cross to save us from sin, does it have any bearing on our lives once we do come to Jesus, once we do come to know him? How how do we respond to this passage? Well, let me suggest a a couple of things. First, if God promised to be enjoyed by faith in his promise and not by works of the law, then, I mean, this is a very basic application of this text. We, as people today, today, should be encouraged to enjoy God by faith. Like I said earlier, you are firmly in, if you're a believer in Jesus, the faith, promise, grace category. And that is how God wants you to approach him and enjoy him. There's a whole chapter in Hebrews chapter 11 about people who walk by faith. One of the characters mentioned in that passage is the Old Testament figure named Enoch, who in Genesis chapter five, it says, walked with God every day for over 300 years, and one day he was not, for God took him. And in Hebrews, his story is recounted, and then this little commentary is given. It says, without faith, it's impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. We can't enjoy God by works and wage, but Enoch enjoyed God by faith. You know, he's like, I don't know. I'm going to go on a walk every day. I'm going to talk to God. I'm going to enjoy God. I'm going to experience God. I'm going to believe that this is going to be a rewarding experience in my life. It's going to change and transform me. That's part of what it looks like to walk by faith. So I I want to encourage you in that way. Enjoy God uh, by the methods and means that he has designed. The second thing that I would say to to apply this passage is that if the law, during that time from Mount Sinai to the time Jesus came, if the law was acting like a lid on the toxic waste of Israel's sin and like pushing it down and keeping it in check, um, then what we should do is we should rejoice that we're on this side of the cross, Because on this side of the cross, the Spirit of God is living inside of us, and he's changing and transforming us. It's a much better relationship with God than the legal thing that they had going during that period. And and I think what I'm trying to say is, if the presence of the law restraining evil was a huge blessing to the Israelite community before Jesus came, imagine the blessing to our communities when from the inside out, the spirit of God is changing us today. It's way more powerful, way better than any of the legal code stuff that was happening back then. Okay, so another thing I think that we could do in applying this text is we should recognize that if the righteous standard of the law points us to our need for Jesus, then that must mean that righteous living fueled by the Holy Spirit is one of the most powerful ways to witness about Jesus Christ today. Uh, 
we don't have to walk around trying to condemn anybody. We don't have to make a big placard saying what's wrong with people or anything like that. But a holy life, it always challenges the accepted societal norms better than all of those means anyways. So if the law would point people to Jesus, then a life that's been impacted by Jesus should point people to Jesus even better than the law. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16 and elsewhere that we should let our light shine before mankind. And I think that's what he's talking about. When by the power of the Spirit, uh, it does our lives serve as a signpost to Jesus. And finally, lastly, I think the, another way that we could apply this passage is that we could just thank God that he is a promise keeper. You know, he made his promise to Abraham, and how cool is it that all of us, I mean, it would have been cool to be Abraham. It would have been great to hear the promises of God on that side of the cross and look forward to Jesus coming, but I am so thankful that I live on this side of the cross. Abraham was like, I believe that promise, that offspring of mine is coming who will bless the nations, and if Abraham were here today, I'd be like, yo, Abraham, I know who he is. His name's Jesus. Let me tell you all about him. I know the details that Abraham was anticipating in and by faith. So respect that God graced you to live during this time where you could see and know the gospel. The law has been fulfilled. Christ has come, and now he can transform you from the inside out.